You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 15th of May, 2018, on Monocle 24. Live from London, this is Midori House. I'm Daniel Bage. Coming up... The United States will always be a great friend of Israel and a partner in the cause of freedom and peace. The president of peace, not likely, as the death toll in Gaza climbs to 61 following angry protests. Kathleen Burke and Jonathan Fenby will join me to discuss a deadly eruption of violence in Israel as the border braces for yet more unrest. Also ahead, President Putin builds a bridge. Crimea might be within easy reach, but is the rest of the world getting only further away? Plus, sports, politics, and awkward displays of loyalty, and why China's got churlish over a t-shirt. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bache. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Kathleen Burke and Jonathan Fenby. Welcome both to the studio and to the program. People in Gaza began burying the dead today after the deadliest day of violence since 2014 following weeks-long protests over the Gaza blockade. Israeli troops killed 61 people and injured thousands there yesterday. The funerals coincide with the 70th anniversary of what Palestinians referred to as the Nakba, this mass displacement of people after Israel's creation. The violence came along the Gaza border as the U.S. opened its brand-new embassy in Jerusalem, moving it from Tel Aviv, infuriating many Palestinians. Donald Trump broke with long-standing U.S. foreign policy here in a move that followed his campaign promise. Our greatest hope is for peace, he said in a recorded message at the embassy's opening. A great day for Israel, he later tweeted. The White House said that violence in Gaza would not hinder its efforts to seek an end to the conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Is everything on course for Trump here, Kathleen, or will this be a decision his administration regrets in the end? Well, I'm sure his theory is that he never regrets anything he does. Mm -hmm. Um, His inner circle is all, you know, who are involved with, they're all conservative Israelis. I mean, what's interesting, of course, is that those who depend on a Jewish vote in the United States, which has always been seen as a powerful uh, element in American politics, in the sense that they they were traditionally concentrated in certain important areas, such as New York City, is that um, two things. First of all, the Jewish vote in the United States is becoming more and more liberal. Uh, so that rather than having a liberal Israel and a conservative American Jewish, it's starting to re- it's starting to reverse itself. But secondly, of course, and this is going no one's really thought about it much, but there are increasing that there are increasing numbers of Arab Americans of various sorts, and in fact, there are now more Arab Americans than there are Jewish Americans. Mm-hmm. And what's going to be interesting is if they start getting themselves organized in the same way that the uh, Jewish uh, uh, Jewish Americans traditionally did, and very successfully, it's quite obvious. I don't think that this is going to have much impact on politics during the Trump administration. I think he's going to benefit from this, His uh, the fundra- uh, fundraisers, his family. Um, a lot of his closest, uh, closest aides and contacts are linked into that. But I think probably in another decade, there are going to be some real difficulties and almost, can you have a slow tiny seismic shift yeah. <laughs> in the in the American mm-hmm. political uh, um, layers of, of where power lies and, and uh, uh, policy that are likely to be adopted. 
Jonathan Trump says he's committed to lasting peace, um, and but he likes to pre- prescribe simple solutions mm. to the world's great conflicts, as we've seen. Uh, but how can the White House paint this one as black and white? Very difficult, uh, indeed. I mean, it's interesting what Cathy was just saying about the domestic uh, political element of this. Um, I've just been writing a book about 1947-48, the period of the creation of Israel, among many other things. And there's a very telling quote from Harry Truman at the time, which says, when a group of Arab ambassadors had come to see him uh, to argue against the partition of Palestine, he says, gentlemen, I take what you say, but I've got lots and lots of Jewish voters and very few Arab voters and so on. And that may, 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 may change, of course. Um, I think, that, you know, as with other things, as with North Korea, uh, we, we're going to get this process with Trump where he takes what seems like an easy, straightforward, strongman move from his point of view. But actually, there are an awful lot of complications that um, are, are, are linked to it. And here you've got the whole Saudi Arabia, Iran, you've got the whole Syria question. You know, this is a very, very complex um, and uh, bedeviled situation, indeed, which will quite likely come back to bite him at some point, whether it'll affect him uh, domestically, politically, is another question. Yeah, he certainly likes to say that he's he's gone through with a campaign promise to, to please his mm-hmm. base. We saw with the Ob- Obama administration, with, with their dealings with Iran and with Cuba, those were not made to look easy at all. This is being made to look very easy. But, uh, Kathleen, is, is Trump going to alienate America's traditional allies here? He pulled out of the Iran deal against uh, the wishes of, of European partners. Is that going to be an issue for him? Well, it's difficult, isn't it? Because if, you, if you're if you Trump and you don't have uh, a long uh, history of thinking about these things or paying mm. much attention to these things, who is Europe? Mm-hmm. What oh. can Europe do against what he wants? As we can see, not very much. What he's going to be, what he's looking at are his, as you put it, his, his fellow strongmen. He cares what China does because China can make an impact. Uh, I mean, we need only look at the, the Iranian sanctions. Mm-hmm. How many how many European companies are going to give up the U.S. market for the Iranian? Um, I, I will lay a small bet, <laughs> not a lot. Um, so therefore, um, his traditional allies, he likes people who have power. And also, I would say from his point of view, Trump, the in his mind, anyway, the plus points of playing the strongman role, mm-hmm. the straightforward, apparently decisive, clear decision-making. You know, I am somebody who... Has, knows his mind and makes it uh, as against the idea of uh, enjoying still the friendship of Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron is uh, it's a one-sided uh, equation there. Well, especially when Germany uh, still insists on paying 1.13 yeah. uh, uh, percent of its GDP for uh, uh, its its military, and, and and has decided it's going to stay at that level for 20 till 20 to 25. I mean, what what if you are not culturally interested in Europe, if you're not historically interested, what he might think can Europe do? He does not see a need for allies who are all weaker than he is. 
he's not really following the line of history, perhaps, as we said, uh, with the American predecessors who have who have stayed away from this policy and, and kept the uh, kept out of Jerusalem. Uh, but he's adamant now. His his son-in-law Jared Kushner was there. He's on the file of saying uh, Israel's boundaries must be defined, and this can be negotiated. Is that something that can be ne- negotiated that easily, though? No, absolutely not. And you had today Nikki Haley uh, at the UN who was going really out of her way uh, to say Israel has acted with restraint. Mm -hmm. And this was not just Israel is justified in doing uh, what happened uh, yesterday uh, and and it's still going on today. But actually, Israel is to be praised for the way it acted. So I think... For not doing what? What was her her No, she just said restraint. She said, Mm -hmm. if you other countries in this, uh, in the, the UN forum were faced with similar threat as she put it, uh, from the Palestinians uh, in Gaza, they would react much more, even more strong, much more strongly than Israel had. Well, that's the, the bit I saw her saying that. So she was saying Israel has to be praised for its restraint and other countries have acted much more violently and so on. So you're not just getting the backing uh, for the Netanyahu uh, government, the, the move of the embassy, but in a sense, the administration seems to be doubling down uh, on, on this policy. And of course, it's particularly striking with the inevitably the, the, the split screen televisions yesterday of what was happening in Gaza on the one hand and the Trump family or family-in-law beaming uh, at the opening uh, of the, uh, the the plaque to mm-hmm. the president of the new embassy. Yeah, the political cartoons as well were were quite yeah, interesting cool. uh, today. Uh, just lastly, uh, we know that Benjamin Netanyahu is very happy for this photo op, uh, and and Donald Trump as well. You know, he's he's taken a hard line on this, and and he's going to go this way. But uh, if he's the president of peace, should his efforts not be elsewhere? Then he he didn't solve any problems yesterday. <laughs> Well, he says now, of course, that that Palestinians have had to accept reality. Uh, Peace will come, but peace is not an equal peace here, of course. And um, it's obviously going to be an imposed peace. Yeah, and a peace which comes with a huge heritage Mm -hmm. to it. And that, again, is something Trump denies if he's to be the president of peace. I'm not quite sure where this uh, title came from. It's kind of one-off deals, Mm -hmm. as I say, with North Korea being another transactional (laughs) peace. And, you know, don't bother about anything that may follow on from that. Well, I want to move on now to uh, Russia and the Ukraine. The longest bridge in Europe stretches some 19 kilometers across the Kerch Strait, linking Russia's Krasnodar uh, region, and there I got it, with the Crimean Peninsula in the east uh, side of Crimea. Uh, the Kremlin says its opening mar- marks the physical reunification of Crimea with the Russian mainland, a point President Vladimir Putin was eager to make clear today with his maiden journey across the bridge behind the wheel of a truck. Is there nothing this man can't do. Uh, Also became slightly awkward symbol of Russia's place in the world, perhaps, prompting questions of whether building a bridge to Crimea might have burned bridges elsewhere. Jonathan, how much of this is about symbolism for Mr. Putin? Well, it it is it is symbolic. It's mm-hmm. highly symbolic. Uh, not that he was driving a truck and he had trucker's jeans on and was, was playing the... Uh, he wasn't actually bare-chested, as far as I can <laughs> tell. Thank God for that. He didn't ride a horse either. He didn't no. Know, didn't know. No, there's that. So, I mean, there is this huge symbolism of this thing that's been there. But also, economically, um, you know, it, 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 it links, uh, as you said, Crimea with the rest of Russia, mm-hmm. makes tourism easier and so on. So it serves, as most bridges do, uh, some kind of uh, purpose. But uh, it's above all another assertion 
by Putin that uh, Crimea, this is Russian, I've done my thing, and if you Europeans complain about this, too bad for you. Can I add What are you going to do? Are you pleased? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, one thing, uh, I agree with everything Jonathan says, and but I think Putin is obviously, from some remarks I picked up someplace, um, has more interesting, almost anti-Chinese implications, because it says um, that uh, you can take that from Crimea, and then you know the trains across Trans-Siberian Railway, uh, bridge over Sakhalin Island, and then from Sakhalin to Hokkaido, mm-hmm. the northernmost uh, island of Japan. In other words, it's sort of a bells and uh, you know braces sort of thing again, like like the uh, belt and braces, like the Chinese thing that will go from here to here, mm-hmm. linking everything together so China can more or less control the economies of the world. In that sense, it it sounds as though that. Putin as well is trying to say, look, it's not just about Crimea. It's about Russia being more than a regional power, being a a, a huge international power, too, which has an economic drive the equal of China. Russia moved to annex Crimea in 2014. The construction of this bridge started in 2016. The U.S. was quick to slap sanctions on the contractors after that, but Russia carried on. Will there be more backlash on Russia for this today, now that this is opened, Kathleen? Well, it depends what you mean by backlash. Mm-hmm. It's there. Yeah. No one's going to blow it up. Yeah. Uh, it, With any luck, it will make the Crimean people a bit happier, who have been in a very bad shape ever since uh, the annexation. And one can't help but hope people are better off. Um, so... I don't think so. I mean, the, he's been under sanctions for this since 2014. I don't think anything's going to change in that sense. Well, but like everything else, it's costing a huge amount of money to build. And um, at some point, Russia's going to find it very difficult mm-hmm. to continue with these sorts of, of processes because it's not going to have the money. You mentioned the state of, of people that live in Crimea. I've been there, and they had wonderful trains that used to link uh, the center of the peninsula to Kiev, and those were cut off, of course, and there was no way to get into the country. I think you need to fly from Moscow and have permission now. Uh, but uh, it, have we forgotten about Ukraine in this situation? I think we've largely forgotten about Ukraine. Mm. You know, some people will keep it alive, and no doubt this story, the bridge will, you know, att- attract a couple of days' attention to it. But by and large, I think Ukraine goes down as one of those uh, things that, uh, say, the West Europeans, the, Euro- the European Union, regrets but isn't actually going to do anything about. We're told that Putin enjoys widespread support, uh, and we're made to believe that he had 80% support in the last election. Uh, Why doesn't he prove it then? He keeps carrying on with with how powerful he is but but is he really he continues to play this card well how how can he prove it mm-hmm. i yeah. mean everything yeah. he says he's going to do dot 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 mm-hmm. um <laughs> he they like a macho man um mm-hmm. he does his best on that uh he has been successful in a negative way uh okay they haven't taken over ukraine but this it continues to be destabilized um belarus is having problems but belarus is still there um the sanctions have gone on but russia continues so there hasn't been the implosion that people expected there would be so i think in a sense as long as stability continues putin can say it's all due to me 
Yeah, and I, <clears throat> I think in the end, the stability is the thing. I mean, there was a lot, if you remember back uh, 2014, around then, uh, a lot of, you know, is, is uh, Russia going to push into the Baltics and so on? Is this the beginning of a new Cold War, even turning into a hot war? Uh, and there's almost a kind of, this is very dangerous to say, I know, kind of reassurance that Putin has gone so far, he's consolidated himself at home with the elections and so on, but uh, he's not actually going to upset uh, the world as we know it. Yeah, well, that certainly keeps uh, NATO on its toes. It keeps NATO on its toes, and, you know, still there is that threat there, and he has to keep that going, of course. But uh, so long as he can play the strong man while actually giving some kind of reassurance that he's not going to upset the world... Mm-hmm. I think uh, he's probably there for as long as uh, any of us. (laughs) Yeah, well, local elections in Russia seem to suggest that the regime change may happen one day. It could be possible if if he lets it. Uh, How long can Putin continue to suppress his his, uh, detractors then? Quite a long time. Yeah, so, forever, it sounds forever. like. <laughs> so long as, I mean, long term, it's, it, it, it's a mistaken uh, policy indeed. But so long as he uses the oil and gas revenue, mm-hmm. basically, to uh, maintain the regime and himself uh, in power there. And plays on all you know, Russia's other strengths in aluminium, in other uh, areas where it can cause upsets on commodity mm-hmm. uh, markets. So while... What he's failed to do is to develop uh, the Russian economy into new uh, areas, new manufacturing and so on, and to do a China, if you like, on the back of oil. Um, For the moment, that oil card, I think, will go on playing pretty well for him. Especially since the cost has now gone up to $75 a barrel. Exactly, exactly. It was down to about 33 for a while. The budget looks better and, you know, the money's coming in. We started talking uh, about the the move to annex Crimea in in 2014 and now this new bridge. Looking back, and we have mentioned the economy, has the move in the end hurt Putin? What, to to annex Crimea? Yeah, after after four years, has has this... Not a lot? No. No. Where, is he, where, where has he suffered? Mm-hmm. And, and everyone moved to, to impose these sanctions quickly, but it, it, he hasn't suffered. People forget. I mean, that's what strongmen know. People mm-hmm. forget. People forget. Or they, I mean, I was in Russia uh, at the beginning of this year, and um, uh, one uh, woman we were talking with who said, you know, she'd been a kind of liberal anti-Putin person back in 2010 and so on and so on. But then when the conversation got round to Crimea, and I know this is just one person out of uh, how many uh, millions, she said, after all, they're really, those Crimeans, they're Russian, aren't they? So there is this kind of belief, feeling, which may be simply that it's convenient mm-hmm. to think that at the moment, but I think that, that uh, bats for Putin quite uh, strongly. We shall leave it there for now. You're listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Bates, Kathleen Burke, and Jonathan Fenby. Coming up next, why the map of China has got illustrators throwing their pencils away and when displays of loyalty go awry. Stay tuned. Monocle has bureau around the world in Tokyo, Hong Kong, Singapore, London, Toronto and New York City. In Tokyo, our bureau chief is Fiona Wilson. It's such a big city, but I think also it's just one of these very layered cities. Most weeks there's something new to keep us interested. You know, either it's a new development or a you know, really interesting new building, a new fashion brand. There's something about Tokyo. Once you're here and you live here, it gets more and more interesting. Hear from Monocle's editors and correspondents on the stories that matter and the places that matter every day on Monocle 24.
This is Midori House, live from London on Monocle 24. I'm Daniel Bache. Still with me, Kathleen Burt and Jonathan Fenby. When it comes to merchandising and maps, some places feel more pain than others. Just ask any New Zealander or residents of the Australian state of Tasmania. But in China, maps carry extra political clout, something the U.S. clothing retailer Gap now knows all too well. Gap apologizing today for what it referred to as an an incorrect map of China, which appears on T-shirts, omitting politically contentious territories such as Taiwan. Well, Marriott and Delta are among the corporations who have also apologized this year for how they've referred to Taiwan, Macau, and Hong Kong, as has Mercedes-Benz for quoting Tibetan spiritual leader the Dalai Lama. Is this just part of doing business in China, uh, Jonathan, following uh, the official party lines? Yes, I mean, the, the official party line has made it part of doing business mm-hmm. uh, in China. And you have to be very careful all the time. I mean, way back when I, I did a book uh, published about 15, 16 years ago, and it was due to be printed in China, but the Chinese printer refused to touch it because Taiwan was they thought shown in a separate was in a separate color from the mainland of china Mm. and so on so the sensitivity goes people are are well schooled uh uh, in this uh and it's something that uh the people's republic will always make a great deal of because the idea of national sovereignty the idea that taiwan is a lost province a renegade province that must be returned uh, to the rule of the motherland that uh, tibet and xinjiang are an integral part of China and so on is part of the national post uh, 1949 narrative, um, which is is just is is there and is not going to be shaken. Do you think Taiwan's going to be taken over mm-hmm. by China? Do you think they actually will make a move like that? I doubt it. That they will actually. The, the danger is the um, Beijing has tried if you like, the soft uh, approach under the previous uh, uh, administration in uh, Taiwan, uh, the KMT. Now you've got the DPP, which is much more autonomous-minded, and I think an actual invasion of Taiwan uh, would be far too costly even for the born-again force of the People's Liberation Army. Mm. China has been very hard on this, as we've said, and there's a lot of red tape to getting into China, but it's a lucrative market and companies want to be there. But is China now putting its national brand in the too hard basket? Why would any companies then want to work with them, Kathleen? Money. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of money. That's important. Yeah. Yeah, Well, why else? Mm -hmm. Why else grovel? Yeah. So if if they're going to continue being hard and doing business with single party authoritarian countries like China, uh, what companies they've long had to deal with these things. But does China still hold all the cards? Well, China does as far as making money Mm -hmm. in the domestic Chinese market is. And this is one of the uh, to go back to Trump, uh, one of the wrinkles of more than a wrinkle uh, in the whole trade uh, confrontation at the moment that an awful lot of American companies make a lot of money either directly in selling into the Chinese market or through using uh, Chinese assembly uh, Mm -hmm. lines uh, and so on for their for their their products. So you're going to have there's a lot of. Uh, commercial profit uh, motive interest in China from U.S. companies. And as we saw, for instance, with Marriott and Delta uh, and others, um, companies generally say, well, you know, let's play it by the Chinese rules uh, in order to continue to have access to this market and to the supply chain in which China plays a very, very important role. 
It wasn't so long ago that Google came under fire for continuing to operate in China, despite this uh, government's interference there. Uh, do we underestimate the difficulty of doing business there, Kathleen? Uh, I don't think so. I mean, if one is at all interested in intellectual property, for mm -hmm. example, and pa pa patents, they've been uh, they've been stealing those for years. Uh, now they're stealing them legally rather than illegally, at least legally from their point of view. Um, you have to be so careful, and you have to make sure you transfer your technology, and you have to make sure that you don't have the wrong map, and so forth and mm -hmm. so on. Um, I mean, Jonathan's quite right. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge, lucrative market. It was seen as a huge, lucrative market in the 19th century, for heaven's sakes. Um, so this is nothing new. The question is, is for companies, is the game worth the candle? Well, obviously, for a lot of companies, it is. Um, I'm not exactly going so far as to boycott any company that grovels over a map, but I must say uh, uh, one feels tempted sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'm interested, uh, Jonathan, we've had so many uh, trade talks between the U.S. And, and China, and of course there was the, the tariffs talks. We've had back and forth in Washington and Beijing, uh, delicate negotiations. Uh, there's this big money involved. Mm -hmm. uh, they both want to be involved in each other's uh, economies, and the, the world economy uh, plays into this as well, of course. But when these things come up, are and the diplomat, diplomats are talking trade. Are these things brushed aside? Largely, yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, what what you've got at the moment is Trump wants with the trade. He wants a big deal. Mm -hmm. He wants to be able to say China has agreed to cut uh, the U.S. deficit uh, with China by a hundred billion, however many uh, it may be, whatever the number is, uh, and the Chinese will show some uh, give uh, on that. Uh, probably one of the Vice Premier Liu He is going to Washington this week for new talks. But the basic problem, um, which comes down to the things that Cathy was talking about uh, and so on, of intellectual property uh, and so on, is that China is embarked on what's called a Made in China 2025 program, which is to modernize the economy, basically. Uh, and it's pretty clear that a lot of the US trade people around the White House, they want to stop that because they see that as being the, the long term threat to the United States. But Xi Jinping uh, has made that uh, made in China 2025 an integral part of his political economic mm -hmm. program. And he can't really uh, step back on it. And the, the interesting thing, although this will take time, is that the immediate effect, for instance, of um, US sanctions on uh, semiconductors being sold to China has been to spur China to pour more money into building up uh, their own industry and that. So in a strange way, in, in four or five years' time, you may find that these measures against China have actually had the counter effect to what the trade negotiators are hoping for. I mean, Trump is difficult in terms of uh, uh, negotiating with, I mean, Trump is approaches it in a very strange manner. I mean, what, one thing that you do not do is to make it clear to your opponent that you're keen to get a deal in a hurry. Because mm -hmm. yeah, they can use that. They can yeah. use that. Just as though you don't make it the best deal is one in which so both sides feel they benefit. I mean, Trump's saying, you know, a, deal, a good deal is one where America wins and the others lose. Mm -hmm. A good deal is a big deal that I can get in a hurry. I mean, that's just a... That's very bad negotiating. Yeah, uh, and you've got this tactics. equally much on North Korea. That's the one I was thinking about, they, yeah. They have, uh, it applies to the trade, but North Korea, where all the noises from the White House are, they are hoping uh, for a deal in <clears throat> six months to a year, mm -hmm. the quick deal. But the Chinese and the North Koreans have no desire for a quick deal. So they 
can offer something uh, which Trump can uh, uh, claim claim as victory, (laughs) his Trump, go for the Nobel Peace Prize, uh, who knows, and so on. But the whole process is much longer and much more difficult than it appears. I just want to move on quickly to our final story today. Two football players have landed themselves in hot water in Germany after posing for pictures with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan visiting London. Mesut Ozil and Ilkay Gundogan were criticized by the German Football Federation after this meet and greet with the president at the weekend. Gundogan gave Erdogan a signed Arsenal t-shirt, writing, For my honored president, with great respect. The criticism has been swift and fierce. The players have apologized, but said it's not a big deal. This is on the sideline of a charity event that helps Turkish students after all. But with Erdogan running for re-election, uh, a couple of World Cup footballers here, is this a real faux pas, Kathy? Well, it's it was stupid. I mean, you mm-hmm. can say for President Erdogan, leader of the Turkish people, mm-hmm. or also whatever sort of, of uh, um, honey you want to use without saying my president. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially, I mean, he was born in Germany. Mm-hmm. It's not as though they were refugees or anything. Yes, so in that sense, uh, if, if this had happened in Turkey, he'd be up. As treasonous, mm-hmm. uh, my my you know my my uh, favored president, uh, whatever Steinmeier. So uh, fundamentally, no, of course, it's not important. It's going to. It was in the papers today. It will die tomorrow, mm-hmm. but it will make it a bit more difficult for Turkish citizens, Turkey you know, citizens of Turkish extract in Germany, because that 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 says, are they really are they really loyal to Germany, or are they really just secret Turkish? Whatever. Well, that's just it. Uh, Germany, the Football Federation, has says this undermines their work on integration in the country. So, is this fair game under freedom of speech? Or pulling on the Germany shirt in the summer? Are, are, are they at odds with the values of their nation, Germany? I, I must say, I take a fairly cynical view of this. I think mm-hmm. you know, sport has been politicised for so long, and it's nothing strange. I mean, you know, remember back uh, when England won the World Cup, and the Prime Minister of the time made the most of it. Remember how. Jacques Chirac leapt into the, Chi- uh, the the French team, Chinese French, the French mm. team when they won the World Cup. Too, uh, politicians see sport as a very good way of getting popular support. Uh, that brings us to the end of today's show. Uh, from Trump to Xi to Putin to Erdogan, all the notable strongmen in discussion through the show. Kathleen Burke, Jonathan Fenby, thank you so much for joining us here at Midori House. Today's show produced by Ben Rylan, researched by Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Amber Roberts, our studio manager, Claire Urban. Uh, more music up next than at 1900 Hours, Monocle on Design. And we'll have more on the day's main stories on the Monocle Daily at 2200 Hours London time. Midori House back at the same time tomorrow, 1800 London time. I'm Daniel Bache. Thank you so much for listening. Goodbye.